Hello again and a very warm welcome from the Northern Agenda podcast, your guide to the Northern political stories you might not be hearing about from the national media in Westminster. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, that's the publisher of the Manchester Evening News and Hull Daily Mail. Every day I write an email newsletter about Northern politics and you can get it in your inbox by visiting the website www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. On this week's episode, we'll be exploring a topic you might have heard a bit about, but could make a massive difference to how we go about our lives. It's called the 15-minute neighbourhood, but is it a policy to ensure we have more services within easy reach, or, as one Northern Conservative MP describes it, an international socialist concept that will remove our freedoms? Have a listen a bit later in the podcast and judge for yourself. First of all, though, why don't we reflect on some of the more interesting stories from Northern politics this week? And we've got a great guest to do it, Luke Meyer, who's based in Redka and is a research fellow leading on the North East for the think tank IPPR North. So, uh, Luke, welcome. Hi, Rob. It's good to be here. I hear you're now um, award nominated, so it's uh, it's an honour to be here on on the podcast today. Well, you, you should be honoured. Uh, it's <laughs> uh, it's no, we're very, we're very happy. We've been nominated for a couple of. Uh, a couple of awards and we'll be uh, finding out uh, later later in the year whether we've won or not so yeah good good news for us been quite a busy week hasn't it lots of stuff going on obviously parliament's in recess which i guess means that big name politicians are getting out and about from westminster and talking about uh, things going on around the country um shadow chancellor rachel reeves was up in northumberland uh yesterday not too far from your patch, and she was talking about the race for green jobs, as uh, as it's described, particularly in relation to uh, British Volts. And obviously, that was the electric battery factory startup that went into administration a few weeks ago, and the whole thing has been thrown into jeopardy. Uh, the government had promised to put some money behind it, and there, the hope was that it would create thousands of new jobs. That is now. In doubt, although an Australian company looks like it's going to buy the firm and say maybe these this, these jobs and this levelling up uh, hope could still be back on the table. But Rachel Reeves's sort of main one of the things she was saying was that the UK is falling behind other countries on the net zero agenda and the efforts to turn sort of our pivot to clean energy into jobs. And I'm, I'm interested in your view on that because I know net zero and levelling up, particularly in the northeast, is one of your specialist areas. I mean, is that a fair criticism from where you stand? I mean, obviously there are areas in which the UK and and, and the northeast specifically are sort of ahead of the pack, uh, or at least at the front of the pack. Things like hydrogen is a big one, but I guess the point is that if we don't act now to get start creating these jobs they're going to go elsewhere, we'll lose that sort of first mover advantage, won't we? Yeah, no, you're right. And, and I think this particular example is is particularly frustrating, um, not just in terms of the loss of jobs for those 200 workers, um, but also that kind of lack of strategic support from central government. Um, and, and I think it's so sort of symbolic of the, uh, the um, failures of the kind of boosterism approach that we've seen from this government. There's kind of a lot of talk and lots of, you know, personal endorsement from Boris Johnson, uh, but not a lot of action to follow that through. Um, and now the scheme uh, is sort of on the brink of collapse. Um, but but you're right that, you know, the North as a whole is in prime position for net zero. There's no reason why uh, these schemes can't succeed. 
Um, in the northeast, we've got huge uh, capacity in terms of natural assets. We already produce a huge amount of um, hydrogen, as you say. Dogger Bank off the northeast coast is the world's largest offshore wind farm. Um, universities, you know, world-leading universities across the north. So there's no reason why we can't um, we can't do that. But it needs to have that long-term stability from central government to take on some of the riskier investments, to crowd in that private sector uh, investment. Um, And we also need to invest in skills as well to make sure it's local people who are taking on those jobs. Um, But but, but absolutely, the North is in prime position for net net zero and there's no reason why, uh, why we can't succeed. I guess um, one theory about how we could try and make more advantage, take take greater advantage of of, of what's already going on is, uh, you know, with the devolution deals that are uh, in train or already in place. And obviously, uh, only a few weeks ago, the devolution deal for the North East, the long awaited deal was signed, which will give more powers and funding to an elected mayor for the whole region, not just the north of Tyne, where it is. At the moment, I mean, you. I know you've gone through that devolution deal with a, a fine tooth comb. I mean, is is there scope in that to for the northeast to be doing more on this side of things? Could could that be the answer to the sort of the lack of stability that you've been you've been talking about? Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot in this deal um, compared to previous deals on uh, on on green industry. Um, not only about green skills and, and sort of investing in local people to make sure they're trained up to take on these opportunities, but also it looks at other areas like transport and how electric transport can benefit um, the northeast. It looks at housing and how retrofitting housing um, can, can fit this agenda as well. So it kind of looks at uh, all sort of policy agendas within the deal and how um, they can be sort of greened, uh, so to speak. And it's interesting, we've seen uh, two of the potential candidates for that role announce their campaigns recently, and both of them have made net zero a sort of core part of their campaign. Um, uh, and so I think this is a, a real opportunity for the Northeast uh, and something that we can really do well. And on devolution more generally, at the Convention of the North and other recent conferences people were talking about how you know this is maybe devolution is an idea that's finally come to the fore in sort of mainstream thinking both main parties are embracing it perhaps in different ways and that it it, this this could be the answer to a lot of the many many problems that the country faces you know moving decision making levers from central government in Whitehall to the areas that are most closely affected so what's going on with the trailblazer devolution deals at the moment. Obviously, Greater Manchester is in talks with the government. What what's what, what are you hearing about that? Yeah, so it's quite an exciting time. Uh, both uh, Greater Manchester and the West Midlands, uh, the two Andes, are, are currently sort of in negotiations to to get some more enhanced powers in in these deals. Um, they're currently the the sort of rumor is that the deals might be confirmed um, before Perda kicks in for the local elections um, at the end of March. Uh, and sort of after the budget uh, on the 15th of March. So we're expecting fairly soon that we'll hear something uh, in terms of uh, these two deals. There's a range of different areas within the deals, um, but but the sort of big headline win for both of them 
is a proposal to shift the funding model uh, towards a single block grant. So at the moment, all of the kind of mayoral combined authorities are in a bit of a sort of bidding war situation where they have to um, bid for ring fence pots for different areas of what they do. Uh, and this would replace that with a single flexible fund um, that they can use for, for whatever they think is a priority in their areas. Um, in some ways, it's kind of bringing uh, mayoral combined authorities more in line with sort of local government, with the local government settlement, or even with the nations with the Scottish government grant. Um, but but in terms of devolution, it would be a really significant milestone um, putting that flexibility in the hands of kind of local leaders um, and really sort of be the next kind of step in that journey um, to, uh, towards uh, greater devolution. Um, and we, we've seen Oliver Coppard in South Yorkshire um, in the Yorkshire Post this week sort of asking to be next in the queue. So you can see how this, these dominoes will start to fall. And once you've got a couple of these trailblazers agreed, there'll be a knock-on effect across uh, the north. Now, there was one uh, story that's, uh, as we record this podcast today, has been quite uh, big in the news in the last 24 hours. Oldham Coliseum is a theatre dating back to the late 19th century, the likes of uh, Charlie Chaplin have trod the boards there over the years. Um, it faces a very uncertain future. In fact, it looks like at the end of next month, it's going to close unless something dramatic happens. And the reason for that is that it has lost its entire Arts Council England funding. So that's nearly £3 million over the next three years, which it relies on basically to keep the doors open. That has been cut and the theatre bosses have not been able to come to a solution to save it, despite the best efforts of campaigners like uh, Maxine Peake, the, 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 the actor. I saw Jason Manford, uh, the, the comedian, was up in arms about it on Twitter uh, as well. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated tale in terms of how we got to this point. But I'm, I'm just as a sort of more general point, I guess, like, should we be doing, how concerned should we be about places like Oldham Coliseum potentially closing in terms of what that could mean for levelling up? I mean, I guess when you think of levelling up, you think of, you know, men in hard hats building new train lines or, or you know, the net zero jobs that, that we've been talking about. But actually, culture plays a really big part in it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's important um, both economically in terms of creating jobs in kind of hospitality, events, tourism, um, but it's also about that sort of uh, pride in place. You know, one of the 12 levelling up missions is about um, that people's sense of belonging in their own communities and investing in culture is a really powerful way of doing that. Um, I think there's a couple of things to say uh, about this. Firstly, there is a real problem in terms of centralisation of arts funding. So the data from Arts Council England shows overwhelmingly that investment is concentrated in London. Over the last five years, London funding was about £1.2 billion, uh, or £133 per head. Um, everywhere else, it was about £61 per head. Um, and even then, it's, it's concentrated in big cities as well, and there's less cultural investment for towns, which you know within the levelling up agenda are so important. Um, uh, uh, so that's the first thing to say, that that, that centralisation really needs tackling. Um, but the second thing I think uh, we need to acknowledge is that this isn't just a story about sort of London uh, hoarding uh, funding away from a kind of culturally deprived North. The North has a really good story to tell in terms of culture. You know, we've got a fantastic legacy in terms of uh, our music uh, history, our arts, our, 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 our history itself. 
And even in recent years, we've seen City of Culture status in Hull and Bradford. We've got Eurovision this year in, in Liverpool. So this is more about letting the North thrive with what we've got already, um, you know, empowering local places uh, through devolution to, with the resources and the decision-making powers they need to, to kind of bring in new funding and do, do things differently. Um, we've seen recently uh, in, in Greater Manchester, Co-op Live, this new sort of events venue that's setting up there, um, sponsored by Harry Styles and, and lots of others. Um, uh, and, and those are the kind of innovative things that we can, we can see happen across the North. The North has the potential to do it, um, but we need to make sure that we're, we're making the most of those opportunities. One interesting thing that sort of occurred to me with the Oldham Coliseum situation is that I, I, it is totally true what you're saying, that uh, Arts Council England funding historically has been very heavily weighted towards London and the South East. But actually, this round of funding for the next three years was designed to try and rectify that trend. And, and the stated aim was to try and distribute more funding outside London to aid the levelling up agenda, uh, which makes it, I guess, all the more ironic that somewhere like Oldham Coliseum has had to close as a result of it. Because I think one of, you might remember that uh, the English National Opera, which obviously based in London, uh, had its funding cut, didn't it, as, as, a, as part of this wider agenda. But it seems like they have uh, managed to at least partially reverse that, uh, even though they might have to set up a new base in, in Manchester. And there was a, you know, a whole big slew of, of, of famous musical names who were came, coming out in, 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 you know, in support of English National Opera. But sadly, uh, it hasn't happened in Oldham. I don't know what that says about the sort of the relative strength of campaigning ability of, of, of people in the southeast and in, in, in Manchester or in, in, in the northwest. But I don't know, it's an interesting one to ponder. The final one I'll ask you about, uh, Luke, is because obviously you're you're a teacher originally, aren't you? You from an educational background, is that right? Yeah, yeah, back in the day, yeah, certainly. Excellent. Well, I'm interested to know what you make of what's going on in Middlesbrough, which is obviously not far from where you are in Redcar. And it seems that, that there was a proposal to expand free school meals um, so that all three and four-year-olds attending a maintained nursery would be able to get it. And, and you can see you know, all the many reasons why that would be a good idea, which I'm sure you could expand on. But it appears that the council, which uh, is going through, as many councils are, a bit of a, uh, a financial crisis at the moment, is looking like it can't afford it. And it, apparently it would cost nearly £1.75 million to deliver a free meal to the 4,000 three- and four-year-olds in Middlesbrough attending different forms of childcare. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's, there's a debate at the moment about, you know, free, free childcare. So sort of early years, I guess, is kind of in the, in the news at the moment. I mean, do, from, from your point of view as someone with an educational background, would that be a good way of spending money in, in you know, ensuring uh, young, very young kids have access to, you know, a healthy free school meal every day? Yeah, so so expanding free school meals can be really impactful. Um, so the, the free school meals for infants that were introduced in 2013 have been broadly successful. Um, they've improved absence rates and health and reduced food costs. Um, and but, but we do need to go further. And, and in the Northeast in particular, you know, we've got the worst level of child poverty of any region. 38% of children are living in poverty. And in fact, in Middlesbrough, it's it's higher than that. It's, it's, uh, it's over... 50% of children. Um, and that's baking in those inequalities for generations to come uh, and, and really just holding back 
um, our economy. We, we talked about green jobs earlier. You know, if, if kids are not getting the education they need because they can't eat and, and they're not having a healthy uh, diet, that's going to have that knock-on impact for years to come. Um, but this is also a story about about local government capacity. Local government is now impossibly stretched after a decade of austerity uh, and now the cost of living crisis. And the frustrating thing here is that, you know, poverty is not inevitable and we know that, that policy interventions can work. And in the Northeast in particular, from 1999 to 2013, the Northeast had the biggest fall in terms of child poverty of any region. And so it's all about those decisions that central government makes as well as local government. Um, so we need investment in local government uh, to tackle child poverty as we're seeing in the north of time. But we also need those central government interventions, lifting the benefit cap, for example, removing the two child limit, and also this uh, example of looking at universal free school meals. Councils can't do it on their own. You need central government uh, investment. No, you're absolutely right. It's it's a mixture, isn't it? Well, um, Luke Meyer from IPPR North, we've covered a lot of ground in the last 15 minutes. So thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, now let's hear our main item today about 15 minute neighbourhoods. Here's an interesting clip from the House of Commons last week. It's Nick Fletcher, the Conservative MP for the Red Wall seat of Don Valley in South Yorkshire, asking a question to Commons leader Penny Mordaunt. Nick Fletcher. Madam Deputy Speaker, will the leader please set aside some time in this House for a debate on the international socialist concept of so-called 15-minute cities and 20-minute neighbourhoods? Ultra-low emission zones in their present form do untold economic damage to any city. However, the second step after these zones will take away personal freedoms as well. Sheffield is already on this journey and I do not want Doncaster, which is also a Labour-run socialist council, to do the same. Low emission zones cost the taxpayer money, simple as. However, 15-minute cities will cost us our personal freedom and that cannot be right. Now, you can hear a bit of laughter from Labour MPs there, but Penny Mordaunt is taking the question very seriously. She said in response that, I think it is right that people raise concerns about this particular kind of policy. So essentially, a 15-minute city is just what it sounds like, a decentralised residential environment where everything you could need, work, food, health, education and cultural facilities, is within a quarter of an hour by foot or by bike. It's an urban planning concept that's been around since 2016 when it's proposed by a scientist called Carlos Moreno and in 2020, the socialist politician and Paris mayor Anne Hidalgo made it a key element of her successful re-election campaign. Cities like Melbourne, Copenhagen and Utrecht have introduced the idea in some form and the London borough of Newham is actively pursuing 15-minute neighbourhoods. In fact, it got £20 million from the government just last month to support a local project. So why do people like Nick Fletcher describe them as being a threat to our personal freedoms. I wanted to find out more, so I got in contact with Mr Fletcher, who was on holiday, but was kind enough to take a few minutes to explain what prompted him to raise these concerns in Parliament. So let's hear what he said. Well, I think people need to know um, what uh, maybe the game plan is of um, mayors across across the globe and uh, what appears to be a laudable um Progression in in trying to save our planet, I believe, is is moving a step too far. 
We've started with the ultra low emission zones and they've obviously become uh, very unpopular, especially with plenty of my colleagues down in Westminster. Um, we've got the Mayor of London trying to spread those out at the moment across all the boroughs of London. Uh, we've got them in Oxford and we've got them starting very close to me in Sheffield uh, on the 27th of February. Now, they usually start with a very small, concise area and they don't include all vehicles. But as we can see what's happening in London, they gradually get bigger and bigger and they take in all vehicles other than push bikes um, and um, an active travel, as they call it. Uh, and then the costs increase also. So we've got uh, the London Mayor now charging £12.50 a day for vehicles to enter London. And I can just see that happening across the country. And what I asked for in Parliament was really uh, a, a full debate on this. I think people need to know what, um, what um, these 15-minute cities mean um, and uh, how they could affect them in their lives. So that's what I asked for in Parliament. And uh, as I say, well, as you say, it seems to have got uh, a fair amount of attention out there. So you're, if I've understood it correctly, you're, what you said in the comments was that ultra low emission zones, which I think outside London, they're called clean, clean air zones in places like Sheffield and uh, Newcastle. They're, they're, they're one thing and they, in your view, are and causing economic damage. But I think you went further with 15 minute cities to say that they are actually impinging on people's personal personal freedoms. Can you just explain explain why you think that? Yeah, well, the, as I say, it starts with the ultra-low emission zones because for those um, zones to work, there's uh, cameras have to be placed everywhere around cities. Automatic number plate recognition, uh, recognition cameras need to be placed around everywhere. And the idea is of 15-minute cities, that a city is split into districts. And, um, I mean, as I say, it's a, it's a laudable... Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, thing that they're trying to achieve I can understand it who wouldn't want all the services within 15 minutes and that's the idea all the schools all the doctors hospitals recreational areas cinemas all these items that we use within a 15 minute uh, walk or, or a push bike ride however what uh, they, they fail to um, or what people need to know is that to travel from one district to another uh, you'll be allowed to do that so many times a year, maybe a hundred times a year. Maybe a household, a household will be able to do that a hundred times a year. And any more journeys than that, you will be fined for. So in, in effect, um, a house with four cars, each person in that house may be only to travel 25 times into another district using their own, using their own transport. And as we're seeing in places like Oxford, uh, if you want to get from one place to another place, uh, they'll be forcing people to use the trunk roads rather than use the, the small shortcuts that lots of people know. Uh, we all know the places that we live. We all know a quick way to get from A to B. Um, and unfortunately, we're going to see those roads blocked off, which is, um, which is another infringement on uh, our, our ability to, to go where we want, when we want. Uh, and I, I just generally believe that people, if this is going to happen, uh, then we need a debate on this and people need to know uh, need to know about this because only being able to go from one part of the city to another part of the city um, say 25 times a year without being fined uh, to me is um, is not where I, where I want to be. So you mentioned Oxford and I know that is 
an area that is a part of the country where there's been quite a lot of controversy about uh, about this. And from my reading of it, the the 15 minute neighborhood concept is in some respects separate to the traffic restrictions that the council are imposing. And they put out a statement after being criticized and they said that they're introducing traffic filters which will find drivers for using certain roads during peak hours and they will limit the number of times that people can go through in order to tackle congestion and make it easier to cycle and walk. But that is a separate thing to 15-minute neighbourhoods, which are not intended to restrict movement. I mean, it, that, that's that's what they're saying, that they're two separate things and it, you, we shouldn't be conflating these two ideas i mean do, can you see what they're saying there yeah, well, vaguely yes but the thing is is that whatever we should if the, if we want clean cities uh, and we want clean air then we should be investing in maybe electric charge points we should be investing in uh, better bus services we should be uh, encouraging people um to, to, to use these services we shouldn't be doing it with fining people from going one place to another uh, I mean, an awful lot of people, if they start finding them for using their cars, they'll end up moving out of the cities um, and will end up moving to more rural places. But then that means only the, the people who are able to move or the wealthy people can, can actually do that. So you'll have an awful lot of people moving out of, moving out of the cities who, who can afford to and the rest of the people left in the city who maybe can't afford to. And it's it's just an infringement on our on, on our freedom. And regardless of how they bring it in, it's, as I say, these things are always brought in a step at a time. And before too long, we will be where we are with these cities. It's uh, it's it's definitely an agenda that um, many mayors seem to be uh, on the road to, and uh, and people just need to know about it. And any explanations about these cities, any people who believe that they are a good idea, um, can write to their MPs and let them know that they think they are a, they're, they're a great move forward. Um, and anybody who doesn't, they can write to their MP and say so. And then if we had a debate in Parliament about it, then it could be discussed out in the open. I just don't want these things to be brought in without people really knowing the... Um, really knowing about them. And as we've seen in Oxford, I believe there was, when they did a consultation, it was 92% of people wrote in were against these, and yet they still seem to go ahead with them. So I do believe it's something that does need debating in Parliament. Is it not the case that with the 15-minute neighbourhood idea as a, as a general concept, it is about giving people more, more choice? So the idea is that everything that you need is within 15 minutes on foot, or on bike and that means that people if they live in a particular area of Sheffield and and that's a 15 minute neighborhood they can get their food from a supermarket within 15 minutes or they could go into the city center like as a as a general concept it is not inherently restrictive yes i think trying to get everything within the 15 minutes uh, of each household i think that's uh, why why would anyone say that's a bad thing the bad thing is, is when you're restricting people from going where they want to be and fining people from going where they want to be. And not every neighbourhood is going to have a hospital in it. Not every neighbourhood is going to have uh, the cinema in it. Not every neighbourhood is going to have, um, not every family member is going to have all their family members living in the, the same neighbourhood. 
Uh, and I don't believe businesses want this either. There's certain businesses that where you, branches of businesses you may um, you may only be able to start with maybe one branch in, in Sheffield, uh, and, but you, you're restricting people coming to that. It's no, I don't believe it's good for businesses. I mean, I generally do believe these ultra-low emission zones, these clean air zones, are a catastrophe for businesses. We all hear about the white van man. What's the white van man going to do? I mean, I had, a, I had a, a constituent only email me a fortnight ago saying he was running um, a dozen or so vans. And this was going to put in hundreds and hundreds of pounds on his business expenses every single week, which in effect will end up going on to the bills of the people that he's serving, which is generally the general public, which is you and I. So it is a huge tax that we're paying. Uh, and I believe there's de definitely better ways to, to clean our air than, um, than do this. I think this country, I mean, I'm a believe in net zero uh, and I, I, I do all I can uh, personally and I do try and push things um, down in Parliament because I do believe that we've got one planet and we need to look after it. But we are only 1% of the issue, 1% of the global issue. Uh, and I, I just do not think that uh, strangling our city centres and stopping free movement of people across our cities is the right way forward to do it. But if people want to do that, then that's fine. But it should be debated in Parliament first. And I think people have a right to know. Now, in Sheffield, which obviously you mentioned, they're bringing in their clean air zone uh, in a couple of weeks time. And you're right, there have been a lot of protests. In fact, I think there's going to be a big protest in the city centre a couple of days before it's implemented. Now, these clean air zones, obviously, they're, they, they are what local authorities are introducing because of a directive from the government that in certain parts of the country air quality is so low that it's uh you know it's break, breaking the law and that's why in a, a few different places they're having to stop certain polluting vehicles from going into into the center of, of cities i mean that would you agree that something needs to be done in order to reduce air pollution in in city centers Yes, I do believe something needs to be done. I mean, in Doncaster, we've inherently had second-hand buses from Sheffield. Sheffield's a very hilly place, uh, and so they've always said the new buses need to go there. Uh, and so Doncaster gets all the second-hand buses, so we're running on buses which are, uh, are very um, polluting in comparison to, what, to what's available. But it's the same again. Uh, why aren't we investing in electric buses? Why, why are we not doing that? I think what we're going to do is, I mean, everyone wants to walk down the street and breathe clean, fresh air. And of course, I understand that. But unfortunately, I can see what's happening. What's going to happen is nobody's going to be walking down these streets. They're literally nobody going to be walking down them. We've got many councils uh, and many businesses now that are working from home. So we've got nobody going into these towns. We've got buses that are trying to run a service, but they don't know which three days of the week people want to work. I genuinely believe all councils, all councils should be full time back to work. I think they should be setting an example for everybody. How can you run a bus service when you don't know which three days people are going to be working? I think that is just ridiculous. And the fact is, is that there'll be nobody walking these streets soon. Oh, the coffee shops will be shut in. The businesses will be shut in. It's so difficult to get goods in and out. Uh, it's okay going in on a bus if you're just going in to see a friend. But if you're going in to do some shopping, people want their cars. They've just made the car. They, they've just become the enemy of the car. And unfortunately, it is strangling our cities, our city centres. And it's uh, we need to look at this a different way. 
we should be using a carrot, not a stick. And I think uh, we should be really uh, careful about what we're going to do because we're going to end up with tumbleweed in our city centres if we're not careful. Well, let's see if you get your wish and you get a Commons debate to uh, get some of these issues uh, debated in a, in a public forum. Nick Fletcher, thank you. Thank you. So Nick Fletcher is not the only person to suggest that 15-minute cities are an infringement on individual freedom. Right-wing commentator Katie Hopkins also released a video last year echoing similar thoughts about Oxford, which we just discussed, suggesting that the 15-minute city is part of a government trend of what she calls coercive control. So let's hear now from a councillor in Sheffield, which Mr Fletcher mentioned specifically as proposing uh, a 15-minute city idea. Councillor Richard Shaw proposed a motion suggesting the authority starts working towards the 15-minute model and says that doing so would cut the time and distance to access services as well as benefiting the environment. So, uh, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Can you just explain where things have got to in Sheffield with this concept and what's the sort of thinking behind it? 15-minute cities or 15-minute neighbourhoods aren't a radical new idea. It's quite a sim- simple idea. It's about you know regenerating like local high streets and local district centres. Um, if you cast your mind back to the you know the the olden days where you know every street or or, or neighbourhood had a, a local corner shop or a high street and you could just pop out and grab your daily milk, your bread, newspaper. You didn't need to get your car out and travel across the city to get a pint of milk. And it was such that, you know, it was easier and safer to, to get about on, on foot and kids could easily walk to school without fear of traffic and, and so forth. Sadly, you know, over the years, you know, local high streets have, have been, you know, neglected in favour of like out, out of town shops and um, roads have got busier and busier. And um, we've had like new housing developments built that don't have any shops in them. Um, and the only way that you can get to to and from them are you know, is, 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 is by car because they don't have footpaths or anything, you know, connecting them to, you know, the, the rest of the wider city. The the concept of 15-minute neighbourhoods is to, you know, make our local, you know, communities easier to, to get around and encourage people to, you know, shop, you know, locally if it's, you know, a lot easier to pop down the street to your, to your shop for your pint of milk. You're less likely to get the car out and drive to, you know, the big chain down the road which is you know good for local um local businesses supporting you know small independent shops yeah i don't see anything un-british about supporting you know local businesses i mean nick fletcher was saying earlier that uh you know he, even he supports the idea that having local services close to you is a good thing it seems like his objection is what he sees as the way that this more general concept is being applied in specific places. So, I mean, do you, obviously you proposed this motion uh, for Sheffield City Council. I mean, do, do you have a view about how it ought to be implemented? Like how, how do we create a situation where people can access services sort of on their on their doorstep or within 15, 15 minutes where, where that situation doesn't exist at the moment? Do you have to, does it involve imposing some kind of restriction on how people move in order to incentivize them to stay or to spend more time in, in their local area. Yes. So so I I proposed the, the motion, um, it was back in February twenty twenty two. 
um, calling for you know, development or incorporating the idea of 15-minute neighbourhoods, basically the planning framework for for Sheffield. So it's so it's been incorporated into what's called the uh, the, the draft Sheffield plan, which is a planning framework that's still currently out for consultation until uh, the 23rd of February and people can go on, on go online and respond to that consultation and and that basically kind of sets out um, you know, the ideas of where you've got housing you'll have local employment zones um, and shopping areas and things reasonably nearby setting out uh, you know standards of you know how you know, how things should be uh, connected in terms of kind of existing neighborhoods a lot of the issues around improving like accessibility and and safety for people so for instance it's very hard to get around some some areas if you have a wheelchair so um, an example uh, near me we've got a big um, you know kind of a retail park that's uh, accessible over a grassy field. It's got a path that's got you know, a tarmac path across this grassy field. And it's fine if you can walk it there, but there used to be a, a, one of those old access barriers. So if you, you know, were in a wheelchair or using a pram or, 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 or what have you, you couldn't get to it. And so you had to take at least a half mile detour in order to access the shops that you could see from your house. So it's like tackling issues like that. Also issues where you've got lack of dropped curbs at junctions. Yeah, you know, when you you know using a, a wheelchair or you're a carer for someone for for a wheelchair with for someone who uses a wheelchair, every time you come to a road junction, it's it's very noticeable whether or not it's got a dropped curb or not, and whether you have to you know take a ten minute detour to go back and around. Well, it, it means that especially people with like mobility issues, the only way that they can get around is they have to hop in the car to get past these junctions that don't have drop curbs or anything like that um, in order to just get to the local shops. And once you're in the car, you might as well drive to the you know, the out-of-town shopping centre or whatever because you know, it's the same amount of effort either way once you're in the car. So I can see how that introducing, making quite simple changes like that <coughs> would benefit quite a lot of people so what 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 do you make of the suggestion made by nick fletcher and and others that 15 minute neighborhoods are going to cost people in sheffield their personal freedoms can you see any validity in those concerns no i, I mean I've, I've seen all sorts of kind of concerns i mean half half people seem concerned this is a communist socialist conspiracy and the other half think it's some kind of capitalist conspiracy and i think if you know, if someone thinks it's one of those things, then it's. I think they've got got things modelled up. I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to take uh, anyone's freedoms away. If anything, it'll give them more more freedom. If you if you make roads, you know, safer to to walk along, eat, you know, improve accessibility for you know people with disabilities. You know, it might involve like reducing the speed limit or. Or, or blocking rat running if you've got people cutting through residential roads at 50, 60 miles per hour. That's not taking people's freedoms away. That's that's giving people freedom because at the moment they're you know they're they don't have the freedom to walk to the shop that they can see from their house, you know, in in safety. So I I don't I don't think there's anything against freedom in this. One thing that already exists in Sheffield is what's described as low, low traffic 
neighborhoods there was a couple of trials i think of that weren't there in two different parts of the city and that's where motor vehicle traffic in residential streets is reduced by use of barriers of various types i think in some of the areas large planters restricting motor vehicle access to certain roads were installed and from what i can tell they have been relatively controversial and i think perhaps it's schemes like that which is what allow some people to think that this is where 15-minute cities might be going. I mean, do, do you understand the opposition that some people have to those? And is, is, is it sort of a, a slippery slope to imposing those kind of restrictions more widely across across Sheffield? I mean, yes, they, they, they have been controversial. So we, I mean, we've had three schemes um, so far in Sheffield. So we've had the, the, the Kellam Island scheme, which was, which was trialled and was actually very popular with, you know, local residents because um, it was you know, blocking, uh, putting strategically placed uh, roadblocks like planters and things um, to prevent rat running. But you know, all properties and, and all um, you know, businesses were still accessible. So if you had any, you know, any business um, in Kellam Island or you lived there or you were visiting people, you could still do that. Your freedom's not been taken away. The only, you know, freedoms as it were that were taken away was the freedom for people to speed through it 50 60 miles per hour negatively impacting on the on the safety of you know people you know in the area i think it's a debate that is always going to incite quite quite strong emotions uh, and uh, it's going to run and run i think so uh, but richard shaw thank you for explaining the uh, the sheffield position oh, thank you very much Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.